Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm thrilled to have Professor Brian Kaplan on the show today. Brian is a professor of economics at George Mason University. In 2018, he published the book, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Now, it's not often you hear statements like that, which is exactly why I wanted to bring him on the show today, especially since higher education reform has been so popular recently. I want to hear what he thinks aspiring students and their parents can glean from his research on this provocative topic. I've had the pleasure of being in the room with Brian on a few occasions when education policy was on the agenda, and I truly enjoyed his company. First, because he's a sharp, independent thinker, and second, because his being there meant that I wasn't the most radical thinker in the room, which can be a nice break for me. So I hope you'll enjoy his insights as well. In this episode, we're going to talk about why the education system may be a waste of time and money. Brian, I'm so pleased to have you here to discuss these questions. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Beth. Absolutely. Brian, I first want to point out that you are a product of and have entirely lived your life and career in the system of higher education. And yet you've written a book really critically attacking the value of this industry. So what is it that drove you to write this book when I think that it could have been dangerous for you to do so? Well, I think of myself as a whistleblower. If I didn't have 40 years of experience in this industry, I don't think people would take me very seriously. They would say, well, you're just some loser in your parents' basement, bitter that you didn't get to be a professor. I am a professor. I've got tenure. I went to the best schools. But still, there's something very fishy going on throughout the entire system. And it's been on my mind from the earliest age. I mean, there are many topics that I write about that I had no inkling of until I went to college. But the fact that education is weird was always obvious to me from about the age of five when I just looked around and say, why <laughs> is this happening? I don't understand. Why do we learn these things? Why is this so important? And as a result, it's been on my mind from really almost as long as I can remember. And in, in this book, it was sort of a great act of catharsis where I was able to say, all right, I think I figured out what's going on here. It's not pretty, but it's the truth. <laughs> And it's sort of funny that, you know, it, it took all these years of scholarship for someone to give you the platform to say these things when kids are saying these things all the time, right? <laughs> like, why am I learning this thing? Is this something I'm going to use in my lifetime? Well, I think that I do go beyond that student in the back of the room saying, dude, when do we really need to know trigonometry? I think that kid is onto something. And yet, there's also something important that he's missing. So really, the heart of my book is what I call the signaling model of education, or really, it's just called the signaling model of education. And it says that a lot of the reason why education pays is not that you actually learn useful job skills in school, but rather that you are getting a stamp on your forehead. You are convincing employers that you are worthy of receiving job training rather than showing them that you have received job training. Actually, a way that I think about it in slogan form is we usually think of education as being job training, whereas in reality, it is a passport to the real training, which happens on the job. And once you accept that, then a lot of the puzzles about the system do fall into place from the point of view of the student, although from the point of view of society, it just makes it even more baffling that we do it this way because it's so wasteful. Right. And so, Brian, this is in contrast to a more standard model, which is the human capital model, which is to say you go to college, you learn skills, 
And then those skills make you valuable to employers, which is why in the labor market, we have that college degrees pay a dividend, right? Yes. So again, that's the standard story, and it's not entirely wrong. You do learn some useful things in college, especially depending upon your major. And yet, when you actually pay attention to what you're studying and then compare it to what you do on the job, it is hard for almost any thinking person not to realize, wow, I was wasting a lot of time in class and not in some way where it was like they couldn't perfectly match the material to your actual job, but rather that they deliberately spent a lot of time on material that you almost certainly never use again after the exam. I mean, think about this. A lot of colleges have foreign language requirements. You could satisfy that with Latin. How many jobs need Latin? And yet there are plenty of schools that will not bend on this and say, no, you must have a foreign language requirement unless you have a five in your Latin AP. You've got to go and do it. And we're like, why? It's like, because we said so. But I think the deeper reason is they are trying to just maintain standards and have students that have accomplished difficult, demanding things, which, though meaningless in themselves, do wind up separating your students from those that went to an easier school that wasn't so demanding. Right. And so this theory, which I really believe there's a lot of merit to. I mean, in the book, you talk about how what's happening is probably a mix of things. You know, maybe you're learning some practical skill, you're learning to write, or you're learning some level of literacy with numbers or statistics, and and that does help, right? But then there's this other aspect, which is that you're just showing what kind of person you are. And I can think of types of signaling that are actually valuable, which is to say, I'm a person who can sit down and get through my homework and turn it in on time and get a passing grade. And then other signaling, which is not so great. Like I remember seeing that people with like country club type sports on their resumes get better jobs than, than those who don't have that. So wh- which, which are you talking about here? Is it both? Yeah, it, it is both. And here's the thing, even for the kind of signaling that seems like it's actually very job relevant, the key point is that if everyone could just do one fewer degree, then we could all start life earlier and become productive members of society sooner. So if you're wondering, so what's so bad about signaling? It really comes down to two words, and those words are credential inflation. Credential inflation. So there's fascinating work, mostly done in sociology, not economics, where they actually try to figure out what kind of education did you need, did you need to get a job in 1945? And what kind of education do you need to get the very same job right now? And obviously, jobs do evolve over time, and a secretary in 1945 isn't quite the same as a secretary now, although the evolution sometimes goes both ways. Some jobs are easier than they were in the past, some are harder. But anyway, when you go and sort through all of that, it really does seem like people today have about three more years of education than they would have had in 1945 for one and the same job. So it is really quite standard now that you need a college degree to get a job that your parents or grandparents could have gotten without with just a high school degree. And that is precisely what signaling predicts, which is that when the average level of education goes up, then employers will then say, well, I still want to get the top fifth of applicants. And so I will throw away the bottom four fifths of whatever the applicant pool is. And that's really what has been, what has been going on. So while I do not deny and in fact, very strongly affirm that if you want to get ahead in the modern economy, it's very important to do well in school. And yet, this does not mean that it's important for society, for a whole society to do well in school. Actually, it really is a, an arms race where the more education people have, the more you need to be worthy of an interview. 
Yeah. In your writing, I really liked when you talked about the fallacy of composition and you said, you know, this is like if you're in a theater and you can't see very well, or, or you said something like this, I'm yeah, probably yeah. paraphrasing incorrectly. Yeah. yeah. People during COVID have forgotten about theaters, but yeah, <laughs> there was once something called a theater where people would gather together to have a common artistic experience. Right. Yeah. And that, imagine that in case you've forgotten what it's like. But the idea was that if one person stands up, that person can see better. But then you, you finish. What happens? Yes. But if, what happens if we all stand up? We do not all get to see better. And I say that's what education is generally like. One person gets more, that helps the person to advance in life. But when we all get more, it just means that employers raise the bar. Now, again, you might say, but don't we need this education to run our advanced technological society? And the answer is, well, if school actually taught any of the stuff going on in modern advanced technological society, then maybe. But most of what you're learning is not relevant to the modern economy. It hasn't been updated in decades. Some of it is actually the same stuff we've been teaching for centuries. So there's, you know, there's this dead hand of the past on the curriculum. When you, and in general, like whenever you're puzzling, why are they teaching this stuff? It's like, well, because they taught it 200 years ago and we haven't changed. And teachers teach whatever they were taught and on to ages of ages. You know, I tend to think a, a lot of what you're saying is true, but I'm sure that there are a lot of critics out there <laughs> of, your, of your ideas in this space. So how do they respond to that argument? So there's a few different ones. I mean, probably the single most common one just comes from humanities professors who say, fine, you're totally right about the job market, but you're just a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal economist who doesn't appreciate that anything goes on in school other than job training. And this is where I do have to say, look, I can understand criticizing a book you haven't read. We all do that. But criticizing a book where you haven't read the table of contents seems a little unfair, because <laughs> I do actually have an entire chapter on the non-economic benefits of education, or precisely the kinds of soul-affirming, life-uplifting life changes that people are so excited about. And again, the main thing I say is, first of all, I totally agree with you. These are wonderful things to do. Something that means a lot to me personally. Look, I'm a professor. Like, so, of course, I love ideas and exploring the possibilities of the infinity or the infinite and so on. But then secondly, just because someone says they're trying to go and uplift their students and introduce them to the wonderful world of ideas doesn't mean that they're succeeding. And that's what I do in that chapter is I say, let's look at the actual evidence. Do we really inspire love of Shakespeare or not? And that's something social scientists can answer. And the honest answer is we have an almost complete failure. Almost no one likes high culture. And to me, this is disappointing. But at the same time, it shows this is a lame rationalization for education as we know it because it doesn't accomplish what it claims to accomplish. And that's what's crucial to keep in mind. So you can't just judge people based on their intentions. So anyway, this humanistic critique is probably the most common one. There is another one that just comes from specialists in the economics of education and labor economics. And this is where they basically just say, look, Brian has an extreme dissonant point of view here. This is not the consensus. And again, I will say I was up front. I said, look, this is not the consensus. I am telling you something that most education labor economists do not believe. And say, look, this is something where I agree that if you see there's a large consensus of experts that thinks one thing, and then one lone guy says something else, then if you knew nothing else, then go with the consensus. But this is one where I say, in this case, the consensus is just wrong, and we've got to spend, and that's why I spent a book writing it. I say, look, they're very smart people, but they are so desperate to go and deny the obvious, and they produce some impressive intellectual work backing them up. And yet, when you really look at it closely, it says, wow. It's amazing that people as smart as you aren't able to come up with anything better than this in defense of what pretty clearly you wanted to believe from the beginning. I mean, I could go into a lot of the more technical parts, 
if you're curious. But you know, just to, just to get an idea about this. Similarly, after the book came out, there was a paper, a very good one, showing how when the Harvard of the Nation of Columbia changed its curriculum in the uh, in economics and business, I believe, and they sort of diluted the curriculum a bit, then the wages of those students went down compared to other students in Columbia. And then some people said, see, here's the paper that shows Brian's totally wrong. And I'm like, hmm, that doesn't surprise me much at all, right? So first of all, this specific curriculum reform was about diluting the statistical and econometric training of the students, which is most likely to actually be job relevant. So it's like, all right, so there was a curriculum reform where like, like it hurt the students, but <laughs> that, could, that could have been because it just made their certification look worse. Or it could be that they happened to cut the part that actually was job relevant. And I said, look, the real test would be if, they, if you cut Latin and their, and their wages went down. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be at least more impressive. I'd like to see that, actually. <laughs> That's a study I would read. But like, my real critique of this is, look, you guys waving this paper around, if it had come out the other way, you wouldn't have come hat in hand and said Brian was right. This is a total heads you win, tails you break even situation, and that's what's really going on here. So I, you know, I think that's really like, like a, another main kind of criticism. And then finally, the, you know, I think the, the most common one is actually, this all sounds totally true and totally fits my experience, but it just can't be true. Yeah. <laughs> it just can't, can't really be right. And a lot of what I do in the book is to say, look, that makes sense, but it, can't, it is actually right. And if we think about it more than we realize. So probably the criticism that is most intellectually interesting is that, sure, the, the actual material that students learn in school is not really relevant to their job, but remember all the propaganda you heard about learning how to learn or learning how to think or teaching critical thinking? That. Now, it's kind of funny when economists say this because the field that actually measures these things, learning how to learn, learning how to think, critical thinking, is psychology. And economists have long been such a giant condescending attitude towards psychology. And suddenly, they're resting their entire case on a field that they have claimed to have no respect for. But anyway, I said, look, that's great. I love psychology, actually. I mean, I, I would rather read psychology than economics at this point in my career, actually. But I say, you, you know what those psychologists that you are trying to rely on actually say about learning how to learn, learning how to think, critical thinking? They say that they, they've tried really hard for about a century to find evidence of it, and they're really having trouble finding any. That's what they're finding is that you're wrong, not that you're right. But anyway, at least before you start going and appealing to evidence in another field, read the other field, people. Come on. Yeah, I think that's fair. So I want to pivot here just a little bit. So we've kind of covered your argument here. And now I want to say, look, if I'm a 17-year-old thinking about college soon or an adult thinking about going back to college, this is all very, very discouraging. I don't like this story at all. I'm about to spend a lot of money, maybe more money than I'll ever spend on anything else in order to get a degree. And you're telling me it's a big pile of garbage. And yet, you're telling me I still have to go. <laughs> so, well, it's a useful pile of garbage. You realize there are places <laughs> that burn garbage for energy. So don't think of it as, <laughs> as merely useless material. It's something that unpleasant that you can use to do something really good with. So there are Two different perspectives on this. So there's the glass half full and there's the glass half empty perspective, as usual. So yes, you could take the glass half empty perspective and say, oh God, I'm going to have to go and spend years studying something that isn't really relevant just to get my foot in the door to do the job I actually want to do. And I'm like, yeah, well, sorry. But another way you can think of it is when you take a look at the curriculum and see it doesn't seem very useful, don't then conclude that there's no point in going. There is a point in going, and that's to get the stamp on your forehead. 
Secondly, this also means that when you are trying to decide what to study, you might actually be able to spend those four years studying something you're really curious about and not worry so much about the job market because actually people who study in practical subjects still totally get good jobs. It varies a lot by subject, but let me just give you my favorite pitch for my own field of economics. So whenever I'm talking to undergraduates at some point during the semester, I tell them, guess what? You've come to the right place because economics is the highest paid of all the easy majors. Economics <laughs> is the highest paid of all the easy majors. Yeah. I'm offended already by this. <laughs> right. And some students get annoyed, but I say, hey, don't be annoyed. Look, be happy. Because look, the highest paid major is electrical engineering, followed by computer science, followed by mechanical engineering, followed by finance. But fifth is econ, and it's only a small gap. The electrical engineers are killing themselves, getting vitamin D deficiency, and they make like 10% more money than we do. Like, like, so be happy. I can confirm. I have a brother who is an electrical engineer, and I'm an economist. So therefore, case is proven. Yeah. I mean, see, electrical engineers don't really get to go to college. <laughs> they, they, they actually go and toil for four years, and they don't get the real college experience. Economists, on the other hand, totally do. So, and there's a lot of majors where like, like the earnings are a lot less than econ, but they're still quite tolerable. So you can do political science or history and they, they, they don't earn much less than business. You know, so again, there are some very low earning majors. So actually the education major is usually at the bottom or sometimes fine arts. So there are a couple that are quite poor. Yeah. Some are even a negative signal, it seems. Yeah, so I mean, in my book, I compare like the lowest earning college majors to not going to college at all. There's always a increase in average earnings, although it's true that for the lowest paid majors, it's not clear that it was a good idea to go, all things considered, because you did have to spend all this money and everything. But anyway, it means that you can actually go to college and study what you're curious about. And I also just tell people, you know, look, here's the thing about college. You can get as much out of it as you want. Most students are basically trying to do the bare minimum in order to go and get the job they want. And I understand, but if you're someone that is more intellectually curious, someone that actually wants your money's worth, someone that says, these are the four years of my life, what is my last chance for deep learning? You can totally do it. And in fact, the, most of the faculty will be so gratified by your, by, your, by your initiative and curiosity that you'll immediately get special treatment. And by the way, Strangely, this also means that you'll probably get a better job because people who have glowing letters from faculty tend to do better. And there are a few better ways of impressing faculty than showing up in their office as a freshman saying, I'm actually curious about your subject and convincing them. Right? It's one thing to show up right around time that you're, that you're applying for jobs in senior year and say, oh, yeah, I'm really interested in whatever it is that you teach. That professors will see through and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But show up in freshman year, they will be convinced. Which, of course, means that people follow this advice. They might start doing it in freshman year, but... And then the signal loses its value. But I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think we're going to shift enough people today with this conversation, Brian. Yeah. Most, most, most kids are, are not strategic enough to do any of this. So if you are, or maybe you'll try it and you'll find out, wow, actually, I, I like talking to a person who knows a lot. I'm really, <laughs> yeah. So my older sons, you know, they did a little bit of regular high school and then they took college classes instead. And they're saying the contrast between the ignoramuses teaching high school as if they're the world's experts and the world's experts teaching college with humility is so shocking. It's like, here's a person who's getting the basic dates of the world wars wrong, acting like they know everything. And on the other hand, here's a person who's published multiple books saying, no, I could be wrong about this. So yeah, there's a lot of better things going on in college than are happening in high school. And 
I'm the first to tell people, take advantage of it. Don't just let the browsers cast their pearls. It's swine. Not to compare you to swine, but uh, that's the saying. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) College is a cool place to be if you actually enjoy learning and, and meeting interesting people. So I think that's good. Now, how about on the finance piece of it? I know this is not what you specialize in, but there's a lot of options out there for, you know, do you spend a, a ton of money on this, what we're calling a pile of garbage here, or do you spend a little bit of money? I mean, does it matter? And, you know, does it change the signal? <laughs> right. So almost definitely does change the signal. There is a large literature estimating how much going to a more selective college pays. Almost everyone finds that you get some benefit, but everyone who's ever looked at the numbers agrees that the main reason why Harvard students make more money in their careers and have more successful careers overall is not that they went to Harvard. The main reason is that they were the kind of a kind of amazing people that can get into Harvard. So, so I mean, basically, like like anyone who is who is aware of the numbers knows that you should not give most of the credit to to your college for your success. The question is, how much should we give them? A moderate amount, a small amount, barely anything, or nothing? That's the really the debate out of people that are familiar with the numbers. So, I'll say that for the typical student. I would probably go with somewhere between very little and a little credit. Not, you know, so overall, you know, like you know, just in terms of making money, not that much. So, I mean, like, like there's, just, there's just a lot of work on it. And what selective colleges can offer you in terms of your future career just is not that great. Again, it's probably a little better, but, you know, again, not that great. And then when you look at how much extra money they're charging you, then that for most people settles the case. Yeah. You know, my favorite work on this was done by Brad Hirschbein at the Brookings Institution a number of years ago, and he showed the lifetime income trajectories for students coming out of actually all colleges, but he he stratified on income. So we saw based on your family's income before you went to college, did you have a big return or a small return? And not surprisingly, even though the magnitude is a little was a little surprising, people coming from the low income household had a much lower bump in their income after graduation from college than people from higher income households. And so I think that's really consistent with what you're arguing here. Right. So although if you're going to private school, remember that if you come from a poor family, you're probably going to go for free or nearly free. Yes. So that's one of, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's so many misconceptions and just total obliviousness on the cost of college. You know, like, like, here's the main thing. If you're rich, then going, to a, then going to a fancy private school is crazy expensive because they're going to, they probably will charge you full price. The Ivies actually... Have a, have a policy that they seem to really enforce of no merit-based aid whatsoever. The only, and the, the Ivies now don't even have athletic scholarships, if you can believe that. All that they have is need-based aid. Now, the, now, they will consider you needy if your family income is under 300000 or so. But anyway, so like a lot more people are needy than would realize it. But if you're actually rich, those schools are probably going to charge you total full price. And then it's like, gee, why in the world would you go? It's like you'd have to be have a, you would have to totally transform your life to go to these schools. And even though, like the main advice I give to people is if there's some very special job that you want that Harvard is able to get you, like being a professor, say, or, or, or getting into a very elite law school to get into a very elite law firm or to go to one of the very fancy finance firms, then maybe pay for Harvard or a similar school. But again, you know, like for most other jobs, I would say just go to your flagship state school. Like you will save a crazy amount of money by going to your flagship state school. And the difference in your expected earnings is quite modest. So right now, like, like there, there is something that parents might think about, which is sharing the cost savings of going to a cheaper school with their kids, if you are prepared to do that. I think a lot of parents basically have the deal of, 
we'll pay full price for wherever you want to go. But if you go to a cheaper place, then you don't get any of the money. Right. And this does encourage kids to just say, well, then I want to go to the most expensive place. The big mystery I would say about college finance is why anyone goes to mediocre private schools. Mm. There's a lot of them and they charge amounts of money, often basically the same as Harvard. And then you look at the look like, like, why? Right. So maybe it's like a really nice experience there, but. Is it like it's really like a half million dollar experience? <laughs> that, that's too high. That's that's too high. Quarter million. Quarter million. Yeah, it's, that's something I'm very concerned about as well. And I, I think historically, it's coming from the fact that it's been really challenging as a consumer to differentiate between expensive, high quality, and expensive, mediocre. And so, hopefully, that's changing. Although, what you're suggesting is it's all signal anyway. So those categories. Are- yeah, but, but why pay so much for the for a, for a mediocre signal? I mean, you know, like U.S. News and World Report has existed since the late 80s. Yes, but U.S. News and World Report is not looking at outcomes. Yes, that's, that's true. Although, although, I mean, again, this research on selectivity, often they do just basically start with U.S. News and World Report as the measure of selectivity and then confirm that if you've rated better by that, although there's multiple measures of selectivity, but that's one that's commonly used and it's not crazy. Yeah, it's not crazy. I mean, what I've encouraged people to do at this point is to use earnings data from the college scorecard to, you know, assess where they're willing to spend their money and where they're not. (laughs) And, you know, I was kind of reading your book, hoping that I didn't discover anything that made me stop believing all the things that I've written over the years. And, (laughs) And I think that was largely true. I'm somewhat agnostic about the reason why college pays, but I, I, I do argue that it does. So I think it it complements your arguments quite well. Brian, I think that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. And I I think our listeners will enjoy the conversation. Sure thing. Let me just give you one last piece of practical advice that is not obvious to most people. Yes, please. So people spend way too much time worrying about how selective their college is and way too little worrying about their major. Very standard result is that you, in terms of your career, you're better off getting a degree in electrical engineering or computer science from George Mason than getting a fine arts degree from Harvard. Yes. Right? And... Yet a lot of people figure out their major once they arrive. Like, no, figure out your major earlier if you can and get ready for it, because that is a much more portentous decision in your life. So you encourage your kid to think about that more than the standard thing. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Brian, because I think it's we don't talk about it enough. One of our previous guests raised that point as well. And it's so critically important. So thank you. Yeah, sure thing. Okay, take care. All right, great. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, Please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. Beth Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.